Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, Episode 127, The Exarch. First, as always, I want to thank our newest Patreon supporter. This time it is Todd Warren. Thanks so much, Todd. And to everyone else, hope you're having great holidays. We we lost quite a few patrons in the last uh, month or so. Uh, I didn't hear any emails or anything about them, about any issues. So I hope it's not something like uh, financial issues. Uh, wishing you all the best. Hope you all are doing okay. And to everyone else, hope you have great holidays and are still enjoying the show. Anyone has, as always, any suggestions, any ideas, any criticisms, always feel free to reach out. Uh, message the, you know, you can message podcast via Facebook. You can send a message in Patreon. You can email through the website, all kinds of ways to get in touch. So always feel free. Now, last time, the Sultan finally issued a, a decree to establish an independent Bulgarian church. But the implementation of that decree is going to take a few years, and the exact size and really just the whole kind of nature of that independent Bulgarian church is very much still up in the air. Also, the Franco-Prussian War tore through Europe and rapidly created a new status quo with the German Empire ascendant and the continent's new preeminent power, with France humbled as Emperor Napoleon III was pushed from the throne and France became a republic again. All of this kind of geopolitical news meant that Bulgarian revolutionaries had to contend with obtaining support for independence from a very different European world. That only added one more layer of complexity to a Bulgarian revolutionary movement gradually tearing itself in two between the two kind of more and more competing factions of the BRCC, or that's the uh, Bulgarian Revolutionary Central Committee. On the one hand, there was Levski and his followers in Bulgaria itself forming committees and generally rejecting the idea that outside help was needed. Increasingly isolated and acting on their own from Levski was Karavelov and the rest of the BRCC operating from Bucharest, contacting foreign governments and seeking public support as far away as Switzerland. Now, it remains to be seen what will happen between these two factions. I want to begin today with some cultural news from the previous few years. For example, theater was playing an important role, a kind of increasingly important role, in the development of Bulgarian culture and identity alongside books, newspapers, and other periodicals that we've discussed more. This is important because, as I'll discuss in a bit more detail soon, you know, essentially not very many Bulgarians at this point were literate. And so while all those written forms of communication were important, theater was the kind of more accessible one. Now, in February 1817, Dim 1870, sorry, Dmitry Shishmanov debuted the play The Long-Suffering Genevieve in Svistov. Years later, the famous Bulgarian writer Ivan Vazov, in his seminal work Under the Yoke, wrote of it, quote, this naive and moving conception has at various times brought tears to the cheeks of every old woman and young bride in Bulgaria. At the time the scene of this story was laid, everyone knew the plot, and many had the whole play by heart. This is why the forthcoming representation had caused such excitement among the townspeople. It was impatiently awaited as a great event, which would be a pleasant change from the monotonous life of Belicherkva. Everybody was looking forward to it. 
The richer housewives had got their best finery, the poorer had sold their yarn in the market, and at once invested the proceeds in tickets, instead of making their usual purchases of salt or soap. Nothing but the theatricals was spoken of at family and social gatherings." End quote. Now, this gives a small insight into the role theater played in Bulgarian life in the 1870s. In a world where most people couldn't read or write, theater was the single form of media which could be most widely enjoyed and appreciated, as Vazov makes clear by rich and poor alike. Now, today it's kind of hard to imagine this because, well, you know, we have so many screens or so many forms of communication, even if you couldn't read or write, that you could enjoy. But imagine all the screens, all that media is taken away, and the love and, and more obsession with theater makes more sense. But as I mentioned, I haven't talked about it as much in the podcast. In particular, a drama like The Long-Suffering Genevieve. Now, this was important for culture, right? It was something that people could identify with and enjoy. But on the other hand, it wasn't exactly going to build a strong sense of Bulgarian national identity. But for that purpose, other Bulgarian playwrights were hard at work. About a year after that play's debut, the Bulgarian playwright Dobri Voynikov premiered his fourth play, The Enthronement of Krum the Fearsome. Voynikov was from Schumann and had been educated at the oldest and most prestigious high school in Constantinople but he was now in exile in Braila and had participated in some BRCC activities. So he wasn't just you know any playwright, he was a playwright connected with the Bulgarian revolutionary movement and very educated. His earlier plays were largely historical and an example of theater being used for nation building by telling stories of Bulgarian history in a way that again made them accessible to everyone. In the later 1870s, he would publish more comedies, but for now, he was still kind of part of that nation-building vanguard. And he wasn't the only one doing this. Vasil Drumev, later known as Clement of Tornovo, was a religiously educated man, also from Schumann, who had joined the First Bulgarian Legion before training to become a priest in Russia after the Legion was disbanded. I mention him now because he also wrote a dramatic play titled Ivanko, the Killer of Asen I. So more of that kind of historical content. And you should really remember his name because he's going to be very important later in this podcast. Elsewhere in 1871, Petko Slavikov began publishing a children's magazine and an educational magazine for mothers and housewives. By now, the man from Tornovo had firmly established himself as Bulgaria's most prolific writer, and these new magazines were another example of his prolific output. Now, if you've been to Sofia, you've probably been to Slovakov Square, where there's a statue of him and his son, so you might be familiar with Petko Slovakov. Also that same year, Hristo Botev published the first issue of his newspaper, Word of a Bulgarian Immigrant in Braila. Its motto was, truth is sanctimonious, freedom is dear. But it only managed five issues. But who was reading all this? Now, I, I just I mentioned how, you know, Education has been evolving, and more and more public schools throughout Bulgaria were opening, and more and more people obviously were being able to read and write as those schools educated more people. But what did this look like in more detail? In 1878, Bulgaria only had about 384 public schools. While Bulgaria's precise population is kind of hard to pin down, uh, Ottoman records in this are not very good, that's roughly one for every 6,500 people in the country, so I'd say it's not a bad ratio. Also, important to note, 90 of these schools were women's schools. Now, 
Switching gears a little bit to talk about that, the movement to educate women was picking up steam in the late 1860s and early 1870s and prompting the beginning of a kind of growing cultural discussion over the role women should play in society and public life and, therefore, how they should be educated for the roles they would play. Krasimira Daskalova, someone I've been lucky enough to, uh, you know, take her kind of women's history tour of Sofia. I don't think she does it that regularly, but it's very interesting. Uh, now, she wrote in her article, Development in Bulgarian Education from the Ottoman Empire to the Nation State and Beyond, 1800s to 1940s, quote, Similarly to their counterparts in other European countries, especially Jean-Jacques Rousseau, Bulgarian male writers and national activists, Konstantin Fotinov, Petr Beron, Alexander Exarch, Petko Slavekov, to name but a few, supported, for different reasons, the idea of women's education and argued that women should be educated. First, to become better housewives and mothers, useful, supportive, pleasant, and entertaining companions for their husbands, and second, to breathe patriotism into women, mobilize them for national goals, and better prepare them to raise their children, future citizens of the nation, end quote. So we get some idea there that, you know, it's been mentioned a little bit here in this podcast uh, as, you know, more and more women's societies and women's schools have been opening uh, that, you know, a few have supported them, but we now get a little bit of a sense that, that some of the kind of leading uh, intellectual lights of the Bulgarian national revival did have strong opinions on this. And while this doesn't sound super progressive by today's standards, you know, saying women should be educated to be better housewives and mothers and things, for the time, you know, the notion they should be educated at all was quite progressive. And so, you know, we can look at that in that context. Now, the Skalovo went on to note that, quote, Lubin Karavelov was one of the very few intellectuals in Bulgarian and South Europe, Southeast European context at the time who conceived of women's educations in terms of natural rights of human beings. He was fiercely critical of different training for girls, which he argued did not develop their minds but killed their independence. Karavelov harshly attacked European, mainly French, educational systems that, in contrast to the American ones, made women, as he put it, trained slaves beautiful dolls to be used by old children and whiskered masters. So the article goes on to note that in the 19th century, fewer than 10% of Bulgarian teachers were women. So you get some idea here that there, there is still some strong disagreements. And interestingly, that Karavelov is a part of this debate. But also that, you know, while we associate you know, teachers with being more of a female profession, even today, still at this point, not many women were educated enough to be teachers. So women's role in public society and public life is still quite limited. But while women's education was clearly behind that of men at this point, uh, you know, it'll take obviously a long time to, for them to really catch up with fewer schools, fewer resources and all that, there was again a strong movement in favor of it. We've already discussed all the women's organizations established throughout Bulgaria, and in the coming year, another one will be at that established in Thessaloniki. But education still had a long way to go, and at this point, roughly fewer than one in seven Bulgarians could read or write, and for women, that was fewer than one in 17. But as I mentioned two episodes ago, the reforms, which played a small part in driving these forces on the Ottoman state level, were coming to an end. On that note, in September 1871, the reformist Grand Vizier Ali Pasha finally died and was replaced by Nedim Pasha. This new leader was firmly under the influence of the Russian ambassador, Count Ignatyev, 
who considered the Ottoman Tanzimat reforms as a dangerous threat to Russian imperialism, which must be stopped at all costs. In essence, the, he wanted the Ottoman Empire to remain weak and thought that, you know, obviously some reforming elements in it could help the empire have some resurgence. And so, yeah, but also I think we can note that Ignatiev was generally friendly towards Bulgarian revolutionaries. And so he also wanted to keep the empire weak. And as I mentioned many times, right, the Tenzimat was a bit of a mixed bag for Bulgarians, right? Bringing some very useful reforms which helped Bulgarians, but also, you know, sort of helping the Ottoman Empire fail slower, if you want to think of it that way. Uh, and so in that sense, kind of hurting the Bulgarian revolutionary cause. Now, some elements of the Tanzimat still had a few years to carry on. For example, Nadim Pasha would only serve as Grand Vizier for less than a year before Midhat Pasha, yes, the same man who ran the Danubian Vilayet and brought so many reforms along with kind of oppression to Bulgaria, before he took the job of Grand Vizier. So there's a lot of you know, change here very quickly. Now, as we know, Midhat Pasha was a Tanzimat supporter, but arguments with the Sultan meant that his tenure in the job would only last two months before another reformer was appointed, but his tenure also lasted only a few months. Really, at this point, it would be years before a grand vizier lasted longer than a year in office. So, for the Tanzimat, even though it occasionally had the support of a grand vizier, that support couldn't really mean very much or have much of an effect because there was so much chaos in the top management of the empire. Now, as I mentioned before, all this was a mixed bag for Bulgarians. The Tanzimat had brought a fairer legal system, better services, and improved infrastructure to many Bulgarians, but on the other hand, it helped inject some life into the Ottoman state, which for so many Bulgarians, well, let's say they were fighting to overthrow it. Again, for Ignatiev, anything which strengthened the Ottoman state was to be stopped. But plenty of Bulgarians still needed the Ottoman state. At this moment, specifically to support the ambitions for the still kind of under construction Bulgarian exarchate. Remember, the Sultan had issued a decree that a semi-independent exarchate should be established under the Patriarchate. But again, what that would look like was still up in the air. Now, in the first days of 1872, 50 people representing the Bulgarians of Constantinople, headed by Petkoslovakov, Stoyan Chumakov, and others, demanded that Ilarion Lovchansky, Ilarion Makiriopolsky, and Paniat Plodiski perform an epiphany service in the city's Bulgarian church, despite the patriarch's ban on such events. This political act angered the Ottoman authorities who were still trying to kind of find a solution to the whole issue, and so those three men I mentioned were excommunicated and sent into exile by the patriarchate with the help of the Ottomans. The days after their service, yet another liturgy was held at St. Stephen's Church, in which the Bulgarians renounced the 1864 agreement with the Patriarchate not to participate in church services until this issue was resolved, and attempted to get the Ottoman government to make a decision concerning the candidates they had put forward for exarch. On this day, the Bulgarians formally accepted the Sultan's firman and in essence kind of established the exarchate church at least to my understanding. Now, I'm not an expert in church law and things, and a lot of these church decisions and councils and things use very, very, very specific orthodox terminology that's a, a bit difficult to parse, but that's my best kind of reading of it. Now, in response to all of this, the patriarchate excommunicated and exiled uh, leaders, which I mentioned, and sent a letter to all the Bulgarian metropolitans around the country, around the region, basically containing an ultimatum to repent to breaking their oaths for the church or else. 
Now, all of this at this point is not enough to turn the tide. I mean, the, the Patriarchate is not going to be able to stop the formation of the Exarchate. And less than a week after the exile of these Bulgarian church leaders was ordered, the Ottoman Grand Vizier commanded that they be allowed to return. They were joyously met by the city's Bulgarian community upon their return as, you know, kind of returning heroes. Finally, in February, the Ottoman government allowed the Bulgarians to choose an exarch. They chose Ilarion Lovchansky, again, one of the three men who had just been exiled and then returned. However, he was soon accused of collaborating with Levski in the BRCC, and so that really made him an untenable candidate for the Ottoman government. So, a mere four days after being named Exarch, he resigned, giving the excuse that he was too old for the position. As anyone who studied the church knows, that's not really an excuse, it never has been. But that same day, another assembly was held, and it selected the Metropolitan of Vidin, one and Tim. He was 56 years old and originally from Lozengrad, which is now in the European part of Turkey, not so far from Edirne. Antim had quite an impressive educational background, having studied at the Hilandar Monastery and one of the top secular schools in Constantinople, as well as in Odessa and even Moscow. Politically, he was against the Exarchate being subservient to the Patriarchate and fervently against the Uniate movement, which, remember, is kind of Orthodox Catholics. So, he was pretty standard as far as Bulgarian church reformers went, as far as his views. But again, very well-educated, well-traveled. He arrived in Constantinople in mid-March and soon set about improving the strained relationship with the Patriarchate. A delegation of three Bulgarian representatives visited the Patriarch and asked him, in the name of Antin I, to allow the Bulgarian exarch to visit him and sort of kiss his hand as a gesture of truce between Greeks and Bulgarians and their respective churches. The Patriarch promised to hand the plea over to a church synod for consideration. The Patriarch was also still interested in hearing about how the Bulgarian metropolitans were planning to respond to that ultimatum he had sent them about breaking their oaths to the church. In other words, the Patriarch is considering whether to agree to a kind of truce with the Bulgarian church, but is still definitely putting pressure on Bulgarian church members, even though the Exarchate is now basically been established and has its leader. But the Exarch is still pushing forward for kind of improving the relations, despite the Patriarch playing hardball, and the Exarch soon sent a request to mention the Patriarch by name in Easter uh, Easter service. And remember, one of the ways Bulgarian church reformers have sort of protested the Patriarchate is by not naming the Patriarch in their services, particularly important ones like Easter. So they're sort of offering to re-mention him. Again, clearly the Bulgarians are trying to mend some fences at this point. Now, remember, I mentioned before, officially the Exarchate is supposed to be subservient to the Patriarchate. And so Antim's actions are in part aimed at securing his own church's legitimacy and making that relationship official. It's ironic that this church's politics makes the kind of court politics we've discussed many times in the podcast seem pretty straightforward. Uh, Honestly, as I mentioned, I'm not an expert in kind of church history and church dogma and and, uh, terminology, all this kind of stuff. And so for me, you know, following the political history is relatively straightforward, but figuring out what's happening with the church is rather difficult. But I, I hope it's somewhat clear to you all. So anyways, 
Before the Patriarch had decided on whether to allow the Bulgarians to mention him at the Easter service, Antim also requested that they remove the punishments given to Plovdivsky, Makiriopolsky, and Lovchansky. Before they responded, a celebratory sermon led by Antim I proclaimed the independence of the Bulgarian church at St. Stephen's Church in Constantinople. So, again, by now, the, you know, the Bulgarian church was kind of establishing things, but now its exarch has formally proclaimed its independence. And I couldn't find any detailed sources about this, but the patriarchate's reaction seemed to indicate that they were very displeased with this. A church assembly was called, which excommunicated Antim I and gave yet more punishments to Plovdivsky, Makiriopolsky, and Lovchansky. The exarch had basically ignored this and sent Makiriopolsky to be Metropolitan of Turnovo. But clearly, things had escalated significantly, and at this point, it's kind of late summer, and the patriarch calls yet another assembly to resolve the question of the legitimacy of the exarchate. In mid-September, it ruled that the exarch had been fairly excommunicated and that there was an official schism in the church. So, you know, basically the patriarchate took a hard line. Potentially, you could say the hardest line they could, uh, which is not that surprising. They've been doing that for years and years as these negotiations have dragged on. Now, it's interesting, though, the fact that, in, in essence, the leader of the Bulgarian church has been excommunicated from the patriarchate and that his organization, his church, the whole exarchate has been declared schismatic, you know, separate, uh, unofficially sort of banished, bad, separate, totally disconnected from the patriarchate. And yeah, you can you can interpret that two ways. The first is that this is a major blow to the exarchate because, you know, the patriarchate was in a way their connection to international legitimacy. And now that it's been officially disconnected from the patriarchate, it's potentially lost some of that legitimacy. On the other hand, the exarchate had now been legally established and was functionally independent from the patriarchate, which Bulgarians had wanted all along. They didn't really want to be under the patriarchate, and now they weren't. And so the move definitely gave them more freedom and independence than they would have otherwise had. I think it's interesting. It's another example where the patriarchate is just consistently taking the hardest possible line, and overall that seems to be consistently kind of shooting themselves in the foot. Uh, right? If the patriarchate had been a lot more willing to negotiate, it could have had a much more kind of active and powerful role in all this, but they keep saying, you know, take it or leave it all or nothing, and they keep losing. And this seems to be another example of that. Now, whether the exarchate will face a challenge of legitimacy within Bulgaria or abroad because of this remains to be seen. But now that we've covered the developments with the exarchate over to 1872, let's catch up with some other events. Now, I'll mention that there were major events happening this year with the BRCC and Levski, but there really isn't enough time to cover them sufficiently, and the next episode will cover only that. It'll be basically only the year 1872 for the BRCC and Vasil Levski, so you can look forward to that. But again, now we've got a few other things to catch up with. Now, one set of events during this year marked the coming of more capitalism to Bulgarian lands. We know that factories have slowly been opening for years and that some Bulgarian traders have become wealthy and everything, but a key element for economic development under a capitalistic system that was sort of gradually developing, but one which has really been missing, is a more developed banking and finance sector. After all, even if you have the freedom to you know, start a factory, open a company, start a business or something, if you have no access to capital, you're pretty much out of luck. 
1871 saw the founding of two Bulgarian credit companies in Gabrovo and in Constantinople. These companies will provide a chance for more Bulgarians to borrow money and again kind of start their own enterprises. The next year saw the founding of the Setoff Bank in Constantinople with Bulgarian capital. So it's not a fully Bulgarian bank, but Bulgarians are playing a significant role in it. And that bank would begin to provide banking services, including loans, to Bulgarians. Again, further helping Bulgaria's economic development. Now, overall, developments like these allowed for more Bulgarian entrepreneurs to open their own trading companies and build workshops throughout 1872. Speaking of bankers and entrepreneurs, 1872 was also the year Christo Georgiev died. Now, if you've been to Sofia, you've likely seen this man's statue, along with that of his brother, looking out calmly over a very busy intersection where dozens of people are made late for work every day. But, jokes aside, Christo and his brother Evlogi were very successful entrepreneurs from Karlovo who imported British goods, a major business at the time. We've talked about how, by this point, uh, Bulgaria is being flooded with European goods. Um, now, if you're wondering what those statues were, those statues in front of Sofia University. I'll talk about that when the university is founded. But, you know, if you ever seen Sofia University, you'll see these guys sitting on their chairs in front of it very prominently. Now, Christo's shorter life, he died now at just the age of 48, was largely spent in Romania and was focused more on business, though he did have some charitable works during his lifetime. His brother will live for decades more and have an incredibly important impact on Bulgaria, but sadly for him, he would have to do this without his brother. So I'm not going to go into a ton of detail about their biography, that's about it for now, but later on we'll talk a lot more about Evlogi Georgiev and what impact he has and, and, and how his his life developed. Now in Serbia, the young Prince Milan was finally declared of age four years after his uncle was assassinated. Though he was just 18, the young man had already faced two possible attempts at his own life. Once a bomb exploded near him, though there's speculation whether this was a political move or just a, or actually a genuine assassination attempt. It's it's not really clear who did this or why. And in another Rather unfortunate, but uh, okay, slightly humorous event. He fell through the floor of an outhouse into the pit below and only managed to survive by getting the attention of his retinue uh, by firing the pistol he was carrying in the air until they came and checked on him. So he's lucky he, he survived because uh, that's a, it's an embarrassing way for anyone to die, particularly a royal. But like the previous incident, there's some evidence that this could have been an assassination attempt, but it could have just an e as easily been an accident. So it's it's kind of unclear what's going on, but you know, the poor boy's 18. He's already had two near-death experiences. However, despite these incidents, Milan is already really impressing his contemporaries with his intellectual abilities. Now, this is vitally important because, as you know, many BRCC members are still fighting hard to gain the support of Serbia. And so... Well, how Serbia is run is important to them. Milan, at this point, was essentially maneuvering between Russia and Austria-Hungary, who you'll remember is now more focused on the Balkans than ever after losing the war to Prussia. So Prince Milan, he's at this point leaning more towards Russia, in part because he wants to aim or to expand Serbia into Bosnia, and Austria-Hungary also kind of wants to expand into Bosnia, so there's some competition there, whereas Russia... There's no kind of territorial competition there. And so Russia is a bit of an easier ally. So that's just a bit of get, get a sense of where Serbia is at this point geopolitically. And well, that's where we will finish off today. We discussed how Bulgarian literature and plays were becoming more influential and important, how the Bulgarian women's movement was gradually taking shape, 
and how Bulgarians had what amounted to an exarchate and an exarch, finally. And that though that exarch, it's, it still kind of has the patriarchate as an enemy, and well, we'll still see how that plays out. We saw how the reforms of the Tanzimat are finally gradually coming to an end, though it's not really clear what that will look like at this point, and whether the Ottomans will continue to support an independent Bulgarian church as a project, or whether they revert to their classic support of the patriarchate as well, the, the kind of institution they're most familiar with. Now, next time, as I mentioned, we'll focus solely on the momentous events of 1872 in the Bulgarian Revolutionary Central Committee as it attempts to heal the Russia, the rupture between its two key factions, evade the Ottoman authorities hot on its heels, and, well, continue planning an uprising to get Bulgaria its independence. It is going to be a very exciting episode with some incredibly important history, whether you're familiar with it or not, so I suggest you don't miss it. And, well, until then, I'll catch you all then.